Here's part two of our episode with Minette Navarrete, our president here at Kickstart Ventures. Tune in to hear more about her thoughts on culture, talent, and founder mindsets. Welcome to Conversations Over Coffee, where we're brewing inspiring discussions on the Philippine startup ecosystem with those who are making things happen. I'm your host, Bitsantas from Kickstart Ventures. Join me in every episode as we sit down with key figures in the startup community as we explore their successes and challenges and how we can work together to shape the future. Yeah, so it's been 10 years. No, actually, it's we're on the tail end of the 11th year mm-hmm. of Kickstart. Yeah, it takes a village to build a successful organization in our case. You know, what was your strategy and, you know, your and Dan and Christian strategy in, in building that village? Uh, I think the first one was just absolute honesty. I have the good fortune of Dan, who is half Japanese and Christian, who is German, and therefore... They are absolutely blunt. And so (laughs) all of my Asian subtlety flies in the face of these two guys who will just call a spade a spade. But that made for the first piece in what is now the Kickstart culture, this concept of transparency and the safe space. Building a space that is safe enough for everybody to tell the truth. And then going further and saying, it's not just a right to tell the truth, it is a responsibility to tell the truth. And so it's our responsibility to say when something is working or something isn't working. And that's helped us start to build the circles of trust that we have. The hope being, of course, that it's circles of trust, not only internally amongst ourselves in the team, but also with the founders, especially the ones we invest in. And the community at large. So always understanding that integrity is the foundation of all the work that we do means that we are able to deliver on the promise or flag when we are going to fail to deliver. That's been an important factor for us. I think if you set aside the investments, the main asset we have will be the people. And therefore, that's the most important thing. That's the asset we care the most about. So taking the absolute best people we can find. I've learned to always hire people who are smarter and stronger and more successful than myself and associating with those people. And then farming for dissent and debate, understanding that the space is safe means we're able to get the best ideas out there. We won't get it 100% right, but we know that when we have committed to an investment, that that is something we all believe in. So I'm hoping that that's what helps yield the returns we deliver. I'm reminded by, I think it's McKinley's kind of motto, I think, where they say that their associates have an obligation to dissent. Mm. And I feel like, any person who spends any significant amount of time with the Kickstart team will have no trouble in seeing that every single member of our team feels that obligation to dissent if they feel strongly about anything. So like thinking about it, these takeaways don't necessarily apply specifically to your situation, but it kind of applies to anyone who's starting something new, any new venture. It applied to you as much as it applies to founders today, right? So in establishing your dynamics with Dan and Christian. Very similarly, founders today have to, you know, figure out what dynamics they want in place for mm-hmm. themselves. Yeah. 
And then from there, building on top of that, what kind of culture then will be reflected in the rest of the organization? You know, are there any other specific things that you think that startup founders can kind of learn from our experience? One of the things I think I certainly learned from Ernest is that sometimes culture eats strategy. Culture will power you through when strategy is unclear or more resources are not available and the odds are against you. And I think maybe the other lesson I've learned is to understand timing and time. And sometimes I've always been kind of an impatient person, I think. (laughs) (laughs) You laugh too quickly. (laughs) (laughs) I've always wanted to accomplish more, deliver more, do more. But I have learned that sometimes you accomplish more by slowing down, not because you're uncertain of what you are about to do, but because you are certain that the time to do it is not now. And I think that's helped us also time how we grow the team, how we grow the fund, how we introduce change in the way we do things. I think those things work whether you're thinking of, in our case, a venture capital firm that, you know, sprung as an incubator, evolved into venture capital, moved on to manage venture capital for several corporates. But I think it also, in many ways, applies to the companies we invest in. The understanding of the necessity of partnership, of integrity, of truth-telling, but also of managing resources in a timely fashion and timely not meaning everything, everywhere, all at once, but knowing the right time for when when we do certain things. So I think another thing that maybe startups can learn from your experience is, you know, in the beginning, many founders are kind of doing things for the first time. Mm -hmm. Even those founders with lots of, say, industry experience in the space that they're operating, Sometimes they haven't had to deal with every single thing that they've had to deal with running their own business. And very similarly, you and Dan and Christian were entering the VC space as these fresh new faces on the scene. So how did you build up your and Kickstart's credibility in the field in its early years? Oh, you have to remember that Dan had been in venture capital in Jafco for quite a number of years before he joined us. So I think... He brought quite a lot of credibility, quite a lot of experience. It was funny when I think back to the early days because Dan was the person who understood the deals, but Christian had to go out and find the deals to begin with. And so the three of us figured a way to work where Christian was scout and Dan would structure the deal. and. I would lead the pitch at the time to Globe to RIC. I think over time that you begin to learn to work with each other, to understand and to compensate for each other. So even after Christian had moved on to AC Health and new team members started to come in, it was always good to see how we tell the kickstart story. And in the beginning, we had a really smooth transition for how we would tell the story and how we handed off from myself to Dan to Christian. Today, 
I feel like we can go into a meeting, any number of us, and we can tell the story having joined at different points in time. One of the things I've enjoyed is sitting here where I occasionally will overhear other team members making an introduction of Kickstart to to another firm, another startup, another partner. And each person has a different take, but it always feels like a good story that we all share, whether it is something that somebody who's been around 10 years shares or someone who's been around for just about a year. So I've heard people from your team, Bit, introduce Kickstart. And it's such a joy because I can tell that when they talk about it, there is pride and a sense of the mission. And I think it's that sense of a shared mission that we all have, irrespective of when people join the firm. Never really thought of it that way. I guess I realize now, just now, that you know when you're kind of creating the standard company intro, the initial intention would normally be we have to have a standard introduction. Mm. Like we always introduce ourselves consistently. Everyone knows like, who we are exactly. But it's also just as much a positive thing if your story and your narrative can be adopted by each individual in your team and they're able to make it their own, kind of share how it resonates with them. Yeah, I remember seeing a deck that you made when you were presenting at one of the Globe events. And I really liked that angle, that clarity of what the mission was, what we do, what we don't do, what we are, what we aren't. And I really like that. And I think back to an earlier question you'd asked about building a team, one of the things I'd learned, you'd have heard me say this too, I like spiky talent. I like talent that is extremely, extremely good in some specific skill, even if what it means is that they will maybe have quite a significant weakness in some other area. And for as long as they are talented and strong in the area that represents their role in the firm, and if the weakness isn't particularly material to their role, then building a team with a lot of spiky talent means that somebody else, the rest of the team, can compensate. And I've frequently seen the team do that. I've seen where sometimes one of us is going to need help, some support for something they're doing, maybe because it's new, maybe because they don't have the bandwidth. And I've seen the rest of the team just assemble around the task and the person leading the task and taking up their places and doing what they can to execute. And I think that's such an inspiring thing to see the team do. So one of the challenges in the work that we do, in the work that VCs do, is that there's always a need to execute, but we always operate in a situation where we don't have all the facts. We are the highest risk class of investment. You like to always say that and remind us about that. It requires fact-based decision-making, and it's usually when we don't have all the facts. And most of the time, it's impossible to have all the facts. So how have you had to, I guess, first adjust to that? And second, like, how do you now handle that with a team? You know, those are two good questions because adjusting to it as a person is one thing. Handling it to the team is different. I think as a person, 
some of it has to do with deciding early on what the risk appetite is and agreeing with our fund providers, with our LPs, that this is the risk appetite. This is what we are going to work with. So as you point out, you can never get as much information as you probably would need to feel comfortable. But even with perfect information, you don't get a guarantee anyway, because such a lot of the risk is really execution risk. So one of the things that we all do is while we will ask the standard set of questions, I think it always matters to pay attention to pay attention to the people whom we invest in because our role is to take minority stakes. And so while we are assessing the deal, we're assessing the prospects of success, we're also looking at our ability to work well with the founder, our ability to support them. So I think personally, you learn to get comfortable with that, to understand that that is the job. Working with a team, again, it goes back to just sharing the information across. One of the things I really like is how we use all the collaborative software we can so that if I'm in a meeting, you might not be there, but you will see all my notes. And if we run a meeting internally, we know we're running it off a shared agenda and shared minutes. And I think keeping the information flowing means that even if we know we are taking a risk, everybody understands where the risks are. So we're pretty transparent and blunt about what we don't know. And I think that that serves us well. You know, one of the things I like to share to folks who you know, are considering working with us at Kickstarter or just curious about how we work, about our work culture. One of the things I always share about us is we're transparent by default. Mm. Unless something is explicitly, you know, this is sensitive, only certain people need to know about it. Unless it's put up front, you can expect with like a high degree of certainty that you can ask about it. Mm. I remember like in the early years, obviously things change as the organization grows and each person has to focus on their own area a little more than before. But I remember when I first joined Kickstart, I would just look at the calendars of everyone and see what meetings everyone has and see, oh, this pitch meeting looks interesting. And I'll go up to the investment team. Hey, can I sit in? I'm interested in what these guys are doing. And maybe I can help you guys, you know. Um, are you still doing that? Uh, occasionally. I think these days we're a little more targeted where we kind of choose, you know, which ones really align to each team member's kind of backgrounds and interests. Like recently, you know, we've been looking at a lot of energy and, and sustainability, mm. um, that entire space, right? And we have, you know, our chief of staff, Mick, he spent years in that mm. space. And so we're relying a lot on his expertise. And so, you know, and our communications manager, Carla, whenever there is kind of a media content related startup, then we happily offer her time for that. So, um, yeah, I remember when Carla had just joined and it was at the beginning of the pandemic. And so the way we were onboarding people and briefing was so different from what one might have if it were all on site. But Carla had asked if it was possible to join certain meetings to get a flavor of what it was like to listen to a pitch, what it's like to have an investment discussion. And that was perfectly fine. We still say the same thing to everybody. You can join pretty much any meeting, except for the one-on-ones, of course, which by <laughs> definition make, will make it not a one-on-one. You can join pretty much any meeting that's going on. Or at least you can ask to join. 
Mm. There will be times that, you know, we'll have to decline respectfully, but you can always ask. Yeah. I think we're also a bit more mindful of not having too many people and overwhelming the people we, we are meeting with. But by and large, you're right. Transparent by default is quite a nice phrase. A big part of our of our culture as well is the belief that people make the difference. It's mm. the people that matter. That's a very core belief in our culture, in the way we do things. And it's not just about us, but it's also about the startups, right? What I like to say is sometimes is the strategy may change, the market may change, yeah. plans may change, but the people don't. And that all starts with the founders. It really matters like what mindset they go into their business with. And what mindset they take with them to their teams and their organizations. So what's a common mindset that you've noticed founders adopt and attach to themselves that can be healthy or dangerous for their startups? It all depends on me. Because it is true, if you're the founder, you're the leader, a lot of the energy, a lot of the momentum, a lot of the direction comes from you. And being fully committed is something we look for, not somebody who is kind of half-hearted. We do want the intensity and the full commitment to the mission. At the same time, it's folly to believe that it all depends on me means they're going to do everything themselves because that leads to all sorts of blind spots and burnout and just not being able to see the forest for the trees and also believing that it all depends on me and thinking that that means that no one else matters is a dangerous thing as well. So I think the ability to take the good of that, to understand how important the founders' energies, the founders' mindset, the founders' philosophy and principles are to inspire and motivate the team. I think that's important. But to not get so caught up with it that they think that nothing else matters and nothing else counts and nothing else will deliver. Because sometimes the most important thing a founder or a leader or CEO can do is to recognize that this is not their core strength and it's time to let somebody else do what it takes to get the mission to be successful. And I suppose that actually also, you know, the negative effects of that kind of attitude has two kinds of effects, right? There's the effect of the decisions they make mm. from that attitude, the direct outcomes of those decisions. But it's also in the example that they set, yeah. right? As you said earlier, the dynamics of the founders and the attitudes and like the personality that they share with the organization ultimately gets reflected into the organization. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the really astounding things to happen recently was hearing the um, New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda just say she had dedicated six years and she believes it's her time to go and it's time for someone else. And you think, how many leaders have that maturity and that self-awareness and the clarity of the importance of the mission that they are able to subsume their own ego and say, I've done my part in the mission. Six years isn't a short span of time, especially when you think of what these last six years have been. And I think that's an important skill. And we have seen startup founders say, I think it's time for me to hire a CEO. And that's impressive. That is something we learn from as well. 
Yeah, that, that self-awareness of, I think it's nothing new in the startup space of the, the idea that the folks that take you from zero to one aren't necessarily the people who take you from one to 10. Yeah. And sometimes, unfortunately, that also includes the founder. Hmm. So it's pretty clear that a critical aspect of building businesses that can grow is having the right culture. That really starts with the founder's mindset. And if you have multiple founders, it's also the dynamics of mm. the founders. You know, I feel like we've kind of touched on it as we've gone through this conversation. But what advice would you give to founders on how to build a company that has a strong culture, or maybe like the right culture for them? I think whether it's a tech company or not, I'd start by saying it's all about the people. And I know we talk about in Kickstart, the people make a difference, but it's true. Um, I think sometimes it matters so much more that you have the right people in place, even if their credentials on paper are not quite what one expects for that particular role. I think for me, when we talk about getting the right people in place, a really important part of that is alignment of values. because. You cannot guess every single scenario that comes up, but you can predict based on people's values how they might deal with a particular issue, with a particular dilemma, and making sure that they are fully aligned values-wise, that they understand the mission, will ensure that when they have to make an independent decision, that independent decision will be one that favors the team, that favors the company, that doesn't necessarily favor the individual. And I think that's probably one of the hardest things that a founder will need to do. It's how do you go from this gem of an idea to assembling a team that understands that's a gem, but it is an unpolished thing? And that they have to hand it over and share with everyone else and understand and just getting the right people, sharing the same values, embracing the mission means that they can trust and that allows them to do so much more together. If I may build on your analogy of like your culture, your organization of being a gem that you collectively cut and polish, maybe one could also think of it as a crystal. That it is something to cut and to polish mm. and to shape. But at the same time, it grows, right? It's a living thing. With every person you add to the organization, they will change the culture slightly. Yes, that's uh, a good analogy. And I think leaders also have to be aware of these small changes of how they add up, how they shape that crystal. Mm. And, you know, every now and then rethinking, is it still growing the way we want it to grow? Yeah, that's a good way of doing it. But also, is it reflecting light the way you want it to? And you can't predict it from the beginning. Mm. But if you give it space, I think you come up with something that is hard and sharp and beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> and gosh, is that what we're building here? Something hard and sharp and beautiful. We like being spiky. <laughs> <laughs> and functional, I think. Something useful for the world. It's kind of what one hopes. I guess certainly for the companies that we invest in because we have a particular bias. So we do look for companies that are like that. And we look for team members that are like that as well. Gosh, that's a, that's a serious question to think about. But it's a, quite a good analogy. Thanks for the crystal thought. So on that thought, across the many organizations that you've worked with, 
the many gems and crystals that you've cut and polished with everyone that you've worked with through the years. Looking back at your experiences, I imagine like every gem and crystal is a bit different. I imagine like the kickstart crystal is really, really different from the rest. But at the end of the day, what do you want your legacy to be known for? Gosh. So when we talk about legacy, it always, to me, I always think it's what is the body of work that you contribute to humanity or to civilization or, or to the industry. I think it's tempting to think about specific artifacts that you have. I remember being very young and being super proud of a hit song that I had commissioned for close-up, for a close-up commercial, or a particular product that I had worked with R&D on. And then increasingly, I've thought about strategic blueprints for innovation and investments that we've made together. I think we had a session, though, at Globe where we were asked a similar question. And I think for me, really, and I, I steal this huh, from Father Ben Nembris talking about Mary Jo Ruiz. And for me, the body of work that I would most like to be associated with will be the leaders, the next generation of leaders that come through, whether they are corporate leaders or leaders within the investment space or founders. I think the thing I would most like to be associated with are all these people who've come through, whom we've worked with, we've supported, we've maybe learned with and tried new things with. And it is far less about the ROI or the IRR or any of those metrics, but it is that we're helping support a cadre of people who want to change the world for the better and who are doing what they can with what they have from where they stand. So that would be it. Very cool. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much, Minette. That brings us to the end of this conversation, the bottom of my cup. <laughs> Thank you very much, Minette. It was, <laughs> Thanks, as this always, was a great conversation. This was fun. And I hope all of our listeners were able to pick something up from your experiences. So on that note, that brings us to the end of our conversation. But before I let you go, as this is Conversations Over Coffee, what is your go-to coffee order at your favorite cafe? Gosh, okay. So truthfully, it would be a chai tea latte. But for coffee, gosh, I'm boring. It's a cappuccino. Classic. Classic. <laughs> okay, we'll make sure to have one the next time we sit down. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks, Vin. Thanks, everyone. For everyone listening, thank you very much for spending the time with us. Until the next time, this is Conversations with Coffee with Kickstart. Till next time. Thanks for joining us. Follow Kickstart Ventures on Facebook and LinkedIn to know who we're featuring next.